great to see all of you here this morning and what wonderful, as Alvin said, um, gospel-focused worship uh, that we've been able to give up to the Lord through singing, uh, giving praise to his name, and also edifying our own hearts in the process. It's at this part of our service where uh, we get to open up God's word and continue to worship him by listening to him and and hearing uh, his voice and responding in faith and obedience to what we hear uh, from him. So with that in mind, I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. Uh, Luke chapter 24, that's the chapter, the resurrection narrative that we'll be giving special focus to uh, today. Let me... Uh, just take a moment to pray a brief prayer. Let's bow our heads. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the risen Lord. We thank you for the risen Lord as he has presented to us in this amazing chapter of scripture. I pray, Lord, that you would help me to put forth the glory and the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ as he is presented in this text today in such a way that everyone who is here today, including myself, would realize what an intolerable suffering it is to live one minute apart from him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In February of 2014, uh, a woman named Jesse uh, Golem wrote an article for the Huffington Post entitled, I was a hardcore Christian, but this is why I lost my faith. It's a heart-wrenching article that she has written. She chronicles a number of experiences and disappointments in her life that led to her eventually abandoning her faith in Christ altogether. She speaks of one instance, speaking of Easter, When, as she says, uh, we were at one church over the Easter weekend and minutes before the service had started for Easter Sunday, two pastors had been screaming at each other and threatening to quit. She also speaks about being invited to visit a friend in Vancouver, Canada. She accepted the invitation and tragically, while she was there, She was sexually assaulted by this person that she had trusted. She was left feeling dirty and blaming herself for what had happened to her. But eventually she summoned the courage to confide what happened to a Christian friend. And sadly, once she shared what happened with this friend, she says that the friend reacted in such a way that made me feel even more wretched about myself. After the sexual assault, Jessie found herself asking the question, where was God when I was being sexually assaulted? And she didn't like the answers that were presenting themselves to her. She says this, she says, God either was present and there and did nothing about it or God was not there and does not exist. It's easier for me to think that God does not exist than to think that God was present and did nothing. This is where I stopped believing in God, she says. I would rather think that God simply does not exist then think that God abandoned me. Perhaps you too have experienced deep pain in your life and a sense of abandonment even by God. Perhaps you've experienced deep religious disappointment. Perhaps you once believed in God, but you are not sure what you believe anymore. Perhaps a spiritual leader that you should have been able to trust has let you down. Perhaps the circumstances in your life 
have turned out in such a way that you just can't square your circumstances with what you once believed about God. Perhaps you've seen someone whom you deeply love suffer horribly and you cannot reconcile their suffering with the notion of a loving and an all-powerful God. Perhaps your biggest religious disappointment is yourself. Your faith in God did not change you like you thought that it would. So you eventually gave up on God and you've just gone back to living the way that you were before. If any of these things that I've just said describe you, it might surprise you to know that Christ's earliest followers could identify with all of those feelings because they felt the same way on Friday night and all day Saturday and for a good part of Sunday after Jesus' crucifixion. They had believed in Jesus Christ and they had high expectations of him as their Messiah, but Jesus disappointed their faith and allowed himself to get crucified and killed. Christ's followers figured that eventually their spiritual leaders would see who Jesus was and accept him as their Messiah. But it was these very pastors who punched and mocked Jesus and demanded his crucifixion. Christ's followers, I am sure, thought that they had grown a lot spiritually because of the three years that Jesus had spent with them Yet they all became cowards and abandoned Jesus in his darkest hour of trial. And now all of his earliest followers are probably thinking, I'm the same old mess that I always was. On top of all of that, the one thing that Christ's followers all knew with firm conviction was that Jesus was good and Jesus was especially favored By God, yet while dying on a cross, even Jesus cried out to God and said, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Think about that for a minute. When Jesus was on the cross, he asked Jesse's question. And he asked the question that all of his followers are asking Friday night all day Saturday, and for a good part of Easter Sunday. In fact, during this time period between the cross and the resurrection, most of Christ's followers could have written an article entitled, I Was a Hardcore Christian, but this is why I lost my faith. But as dawn broke... Early Sunday morning, on that first Easter, God raised Jesus from the dead. And loving Messiah that Jesus is, the very first thing that Jesus sets about to doing is pursuing his brokenhearted, disheartened followers, seeking to resurrect their disappointed and shattered faith. It's going to take a lot to get his followers to believe again. But Jesus, we see in this chapter, accomplishes this feat with sensitivity and with patience. His finesse in dealing with his brokenhearted followers is just amazing to watch in this chapter. I love Jesus. I love him. I love him for many reasons. I love him because he died for my sins. I love him because he was raised from the dead. And I also love him because of the beautiful way that he so patiently brings about a revival of faith in the hearts of his shattered followers through the length of the day on that first Easter Sunday. And that's the story that I want to try to put before you this morning. The way we'll frame our look at this chapter this morning is we'll observe seven things that Jesus does to resurrect his followers' shattered faith. We'll not be able to look at everything in this chapter uh, detail by detail, but we will 
work through the chapter and observe these seven things that Jesus does to resurrect their shattered faith. And the first thing that we see that he does is he presents them with an empty tomb. That's a great start. As the narrative opens in Luke 24, there are some women who are coming to the tomb of Jesus on that first Easter morning after his death. And look what the text says in verse one. It says, but on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. The fact that these women were bringing spices with them indicates that they were not expecting a resurrection. They were expecting to find the dead body of Jesus that needed to be further prepared for a long internment in the tomb. But to their surprise, look at what happens in verse 2. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. So what is their response? Did they see the empty tomb and say, wow, this is the resurrection, and henceforth this will be known as Easter Sunday? No, look at verse 4. We learn that they were perplexed about this. Literally, this means they were without a way of understanding why the tomb would be empty. So to help them in their perplexity, Jesus does a second thing to resurrect their disappointed faith and convince them that he has risen from the dead, and that is he provides them angelic messengers announcing his resurrection. Would that help you? I mean, I mean, if you're perplexed about something and the Lord sent you angelic beings to explain what it is that you're perplexed about, would that be helpful? It would me, and it is for these women as well. Look at what happens beginning in verse 4. It says, And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. We know from later in the chapter that these men are angels. And the big giveaway here is their dazzling clothing. The Greek word that is translated dazzling is actually the Greek word for lightning. Literally, these angels were wearing lightning clothing. This was not just white clothing. It's the blinding white of lightning and the sight of these angels in lightning clothes leaves the women beside themselves with fright. Look at what happens in verse 5. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. And there's the announcement. The tomb is empty because Christ is not in it, and he's not in it because he has risen from the dead. So Christ has provided these ladies with an empty tomb, and on top of that, he has provided them with angels explaining to them that Christ has been raised from the dead. But there's yet another thing Christ does for them to resurrect the disappointed faith of his followers and to convince them that he is raised. And that is, he reminds them of his prior predictions of his suffering and resurrection. He reminds them of his prior predictions of his suffering and resurrection. Look at verse 6. As the angels continue talking, they say, Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And they, the women, remember these words. If you read the gospel accounts, you will see that prior to Christ's suffering and death, he kept on telling his disciples that he would suffer and that he would die. And on the third day, he would rise again. And he wasn't just telling them that these things will happen he was telling them that these things must happen because it was God's plan. It was a part of his mission to suffer and to die and to be raised. And he was 
bent on fulfilling that. The problem was that these repeated predictions and statements by Jesus were not what the disciples wanted to hear. And because they did not want to hear about Jesus suffering and dying, they tuned him out. And because they tuned him out, their faith was left underinformed, leaving them unprepared for his death and unprepared for his resurrection on this Sunday of the year and setting themselves up for the disappointment that they've all experienced and are reeling from right now. But now the angels are reminding these ladies of Christ's repeated statements about the suffering and death and resurrection and how he had foretold all of these things. And the women, as they're bowed low before the angels, quivering in fear, they're thinking, that's right. And verse 8 tells us they remembered Jesus' words to this effect. So look at what the women do beginning in verse 9. It says, And they, the women, returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. These are the men who followed Jesus. Who are the women in this story? Look at verse 10. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James. Also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. So they go to the men who it seems are all gathered together and they told them about the empty tomb that they found. They told them about the angels and lightning clothes who were at the tomb who told them, the ladies, that he had risen from the dead. And then these ladies would have told the men about how the angels reminded them that Christ repeatedly told us that this would happen, that he would suffer and die and be raised. That seems compelling to me if I heard that from somebody. But how do the men respond? Look at verse 11. But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. The Greek word that is translated nonsense here speaks of the ravings of a crazy person. So this means that the disciples are not just saying to the women, you're mistaken, what they're saying is, you ladies are crazy. And they persistently refuse to believe what the ladies are telling them in spite of the women's repeated efforts to persuade them otherwise. At some point, though, probably after the women had left, typical man that he is, Peter starts thinking to himself, you know, we probably ought to go check this out. If something at the tomb made these women crazy, we should at least go see what made them crazy. So in verse 12, look at what the text says. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. Literally, the text reads, he went away to his home, wondering to himself what had happened. Peter doesn't believe the resurrection has actually happened. He is puzzling with amazement over what possibly could have happened that would leave the tomb empty of the body of Jesus and yet leave the linen wrappings there. So up to this point, Christ has lovingly provided his followers with an empty tomb, angelic messengers announcing that he has been raised he has reminded them of his repeated predictions regarding the necessity of his suffering, his death and resurrection. Yet the disciples' faith in him has failed to be revived. They're still not convinced that Jesus has risen from the dead. So Christ does yet another thing as a part of the process of reviving their faith. And this, honestly, may be the most touching thing to me of all. Number four. He listens to their story of disappointed faith. He listens to their story of disappointed faith. Look at what happens in verse 13. And behold, two of them. In other words, two of the men who were refusing to believe the women. Two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. 
For those of you who wear a Fitbit, that's about 14,000 steps from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And it was largely downhill. They're leaving Jerusalem because as far as they're concerned, there's no reason to wait around in Jerusalem for anything. Nothing of any significance is going to happen today. So they leave Jerusalem and head toward Emmaus. And as they're walking to the town of Emmaus, observe what they're talking about in verse 14. It says, and they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. In other words, they were talking about Christ's death. They were talking about their shattered dreams. They were talking about what the women had reported to them about an empty tomb and the angels at the tomb. Look at what happens in verse 15. It says, And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still looking sad. And one of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And I love Jesus' response. Verse 19, And he said to them, What things? These these men have experienced a shattering of their faith. Their faith in Jesus has honestly been disappointed. And the risen Lord is actually wanting to hear their story. Please take note of this. If you have experienced deep religious disappointment and pain in your life, guess who's interested in your story? Jesus is. Just as he's interested in the story of these men. He doesn't have to do this, but he does. He could have said, you know what? Never mind. Don't talk. Guys, it's me. He could have done that. But it seems that Jesus would rather be a friend and hear their pain and hear their story first. So he starts walking with them and he asks, what are you talking about? And then he asks them again, what things? He already knows their story, but he wants to give them the opportunity to tell him their story. So he says, what things? And look at their reply, verse 19. And they said to him, the things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests, our pastors, And our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. Then look at what they say in verse 21. But we were hoping. Past tense. Meaning we're not hoping anymore. We're not hoping in Jesus anymore, but we were hoping in him. We were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, beside all this, it's the third day since these things happened. They continue, verse 22, But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning, and they did not find his body. And they came saying that, he had, that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Notice, the language that the men are using here. They're very skeptical about the women and what the women said. They're not convinced that the women actually saw angels. If you go by their actual wording, all they're willing to say is that the women came saying that they had seen a vision of the angels. They believe that the women were at the tomb early in the morning and that they didn't find his body They believe that, but as for the rest, all they're willing to say is they came saying that they 
had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Look at verse 24, which explains why they actually believe that the tomb was empty. As the women testified, verse 24, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. And that's the end of their story. And that's why they're standing there looking sad. That's why they were hoping that Jesus would redeem Israel, but they're not hoping anymore. Basically, the title of what these men have just said to Jesus is this. We were once hardcore Christians, but this is why we lost our faith. And Jesus patiently listens to their story of heartbreak and disappointment. It's then that Jesus does another thing to resurrect his followers' faith in him and convince them that he had risen from the dead. And that is he explains to them the scriptures and what those scriptures reveal about him. And it's so interesting to me that Jesus takes the time to do this before he physically reveals himself to them. Look at Jesus' reply to the story that these men tell. Verse 25, and he said to them, oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Now, on the surface, uh, this might seem like a harsh conversation starter. Um, but two things really are happening here that are quite wonderful. First of all, Jesus is speaking hard truth to these men that they needed to hear about themselves. And while it may have stung these men a little bit to hear this from Jesus, don't we all at the end of the day want a friend who speaks truth to us, even hard truth to us? As long as that friend is willing to walk with us and hear our story, don't we want a friend like that who's also gut level honest with us about what he sees in us? That's what Jesus does here because that's the kind of friend that he is. Secondly, Jesus is actually telling them great news that God has been up to something far grander than these men could have imagined because these men have been too slow of heart or too reluctant to believe all that the prophets have spoken. They just believe the parts that they wanted to believe and ignored the other parts. And so they miss the big picture, the grander picture of what God was up to. And that's why their faith in Jesus was disappointed because their faith was insufficiently informed. Jesus continues in verse 26. He says, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? There's the language of necessity again. For Christ to truly persuade his followers that he has been raised from the dead he also needs to help them to understand his suffering and that his suffering was a part of God's plan. His suffering was no accident. And to show them this, look at what Jesus does in verse 27. Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So they stood still looking sad. They told Jesus their story. And then it seems that they began walking together. And as they walk, Jesus basically conducts a two-hour Bible study with these men, unfolding the Old Testament scriptures and all the things that they spoke about him and about his suffering and his death and his resurrection. He takes them to the scriptures I saw something uh, this past week that really made me sad 
Uh, Ryan Meeks is a pastor of East Lake Community Church in Washington State, and he has recently gone public in saying that there are many things in the Bible that I disagree with. And in a recent interview, he said this, and I quote, If we need to consult an ancient book to know what to do when a human being is in front of us, I think we're screwed already. Really? Too bad Jesus never had the benefit of Ryan Meek's great wisdom. Jesus has two broken-hearted men standing in front of him who just told him the story of how they lost their faith. And not knowing any better, what does Jesus do? He takes them to the ancient book, the scriptures. And it says in the text, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. He walks them from Genesis to Malachi and shows these men how those ancient scriptures pointed to Jesus, to his coming and to his suffering and to his death and to his resurrection and how all of that was a part of God's necessary plan. Again, I'm struck by the fact that Jesus didn't respond to these two men by saying, guys, it's me. Instead, he first takes them to the scripture and does some spade work in their hearts. And it's only after he has spent time with them in the scriptures that Jesus then decides that it's time to reveal himself to them. And this leads us to the sixth thing that Jesus does to resurrect his followers' disappointed faith and convince them that he had been raised from the dead. And that is he makes three appearances to them. There are three appearances of Jesus in Luke 24, and his first appearance is to these two disciples, and it's beautiful to behold. Look at what happens beginning in verse 28. It says, and, and they approach the village where they were going, so they arrive at Emmaus, and he, Jesus, acted as though he were going farther. Jesus is being more than polite here. He wants to spend more time with these men. He wants to reveal himself to these men. But gentleman that he is, he doesn't want to do so uninvited. So he acts like he's intending to travel on farther after they part ways. This is the resurrected Lord of the universe, and he's waiting for an invitation to come into somebody's home. And look at what the men do when they observe this, when they suddenly realize, oh my goodness, we're about to part ways. Verse 29, but they urged him saying, stay with us for it is getting toward evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. Then what happens next is fascinating. They've just had a seven mile walk and it's getting toward evening, so their first priority when they enter the home is to recline at the table and have dinner. So they pull out some stuff to eat and set it on the table. Then the two of these men recline at the table and invite Jesus to join them. And then look at what happens in verse 30. And when he, Jesus, had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it. And breaking it, he began giving it to them. Imagine having a guest in your home, and when you all sit down at the table, your guest says, okay, let's pray. And then they just start praying, and then they start grabbing the food and serving everybody at the table. That's what Jesus does here. Jesus is acting like the host at this table. And something about how he blessed the bread. These men had heard him do that before. And something about how he broke the bread and gave it to them. They had experienced him doing that before. 
awakened in them the realization of who this was at the table with them. And right at this moment, a miracle occurs in the eyes of these men. Look at verse 31. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And right as they recognized him, look at what happens. And he vanished from their sight. I I love this about Jesus. He's the resurrected Lord and he chooses to reveal himself to these men through a prayer over bread and through giving that bread to these men. If I were the resurrected Lord, I would be doing a laser show in the sky to show these men I've truly been raised. Jesus decides to reveal himself by praying a little prayer and giving bread to these weary travelers. And now these two disciples are left sitting at their table with their jaws hanging open And they say something that I guarantee you none of us would have expected them to say. Verse 32, and they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? It's amazing to me that this is the first thing that comes out of their mouth. They aren't lit up only about the fact that they saw Christ at their dinner table just now. They're lit up about how they saw Christ on the road as he was presented to them in the scriptures. Guys, and that's a blessing that all of us have to this day. Even today, as Christ is being presented to all of us, including me, through the scriptures We get to behold him in scriptures just like they did. And that's what excited them. But now Jesus has vanished and the burning hearts of these men dictates that they return to Jerusalem right away. So look at what they do in verse 33 says, and they got up that very hour and return to Jerusalem. Again, this is amazing. These men have just made a seven-mile hike largely downhill from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And now they're going to make a largely uphill 14,000-step hike from Emmaus back to Jerusalem. But they don't care. They make the hike probably part of the time walking and part of the time running to get back to Jerusalem to share the news with Jesus' other disciples. And when they get to Jerusalem a couple hours later, look at what happens next. And this brings us to the second appearance of Jesus to Simon Peter. Verse 33 says, And they found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them. And no doubt, as soon as they come into the room, these two men burst into the room saying, Boy, you guys are not going to believe what happened to us. But before they could speak, the 11 and those who were with them said, you're not going to believe what's happened to us. So the 11 and the others speak to these two men, verse 34, saying the Lord is really risen and has appeared to Simon, speaking about Peter. And then the two men respond in verse 35. It says, and they, the two men began to relate And they're relating two things. They began to relate their experiences on the road. And number two, how he was recognized by them and the breaking of the bread. Among the things that these two men would have recounted would have been how Jesus walked them through the Old Testament scriptures and explained the things concerning himself from the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Malachi. And as these men are sharing this with all those who are gathered, the minds of everyone in the room are being expanded. K. 
categories are now being created in everyone's minds to ready them for Christ to make his third appearance to all of them together. And that's exactly what Jesus does, which leads to his third appearance. Look at what happens in verse 36. It says, and while they were telling these things, he himself, Jesus, stood in their midst and said to them, peace be to you. He doesn't knock at the door and say, I just want to let you know I'm the resurrected Christ. I'm going to give you guys a moment to collect your thoughts. No, he just appears in the room as if he had been there all along and says, peace to you. This was the standard way of saying hello in this day. Peace to you, Jesus says, and his followers experience anything but peace when they see him. Verse 37, but they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. This means, guys, that they still are not yet fully believing that Jesus had been raised. They think they're just looking at a spirit and they're startled and they're frightened by the presence of Jesus. And we also know that they are troubled and filled with doubts. And we know this because look at what Jesus does in verse 38. It says, and he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, which bore the scars of his crucifixion. He says that it is I myself. In fact, don't just look at me. He says, touch me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, inviting them to look and to touch him. So now the disciples are touching Jesus touching his hands and his feet and his side, touching his hair and face and grabbing his arm and feeling the bone of his elbow, putting their hand on his shoulder, basically handling Jesus, doing all they can to verify that he was, in fact, physically standing there, risen from the dead. And at this point, guys, the disciples of Jesus, these early followers, they have every reason to fully believe at this point. They have an empty tomb, angelic messengers announcing Christ's resurrection, reminders of Christ's repeated predictions of his death and resurrection. They have Old Testament prophecies predicting his death and resurrection that they've all been reminded of. And now they have three certifiable appearances of Jesus. And during this third appearance, they're actually allowed to touch Jesus and handle him for the purposes of verification. That's overwhelming evidence. In fact, I heard an atheist on TV say a couple years ago, if Jesus made an appearance right in front of me and stood in front of me, I would believe. Christ's earliest followers, you know what they would say? They would say, dude, you're easy. It took more than that to persuade us. How do they respond in the face of all of this evidence? Verse 41, they still could not believe it. And you know why they could not believe? Because when your faith has been burned once and you staked all of your life on it, it's hard to let yourself believe again. And that may be where some of you are today. Verse 41 tells us that they still could not believe it because of their joy. In other words, they're starting to believe and they're feeling joy, but the joy scares them. They are afraid to let themselves feel this joy for fear that that joy may get crushed and disappointed again. And they can't handle another disappointment right now. The text also says they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement. 
What that means is their thought is, you know, here's Jesus. He's right in front of us. We're touching him. But how can this be? This defies logic. It defies the laws of nature. We have so many questions that have no answers. And we dare not let ourselves believe until we have all of our questions answered. We get that. And Jesus sees them still struggling to believe in it. He has every reason to rebuke them for still not believing in the face of so much evidence. But he's a gracious savior, isn't he? So look at what he does in verse 41. It says, and while they still could not believe it for joy and amazement, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some manuscripts say, and honey from a honeycomb. And he took it and ate it in front of them. Imagine the scene. Everyone is huddled around Jesus. They bring him some fish to eat. Jesus breaks off a piece of the the fish and he puts it in his mouth and he chews it. And normally it's not polite to stare at someone when they are eating, right? But everyone in this room is staring at Jesus and they watch him put the food in his mouth and they watch him chew it and then swallow it. Guys, this is Jesus, the loving, gracious Savior, going to every length to resurrect his followers' faith in him and to persuade them that he has truly risen from the dead. Jesus does more than this. After he eats the fish, he does a seventh and a final thing to revive their shattered faith and convince them that he was raised from the dead. And that is, he does a miracle. He opens their minds to understand the scriptures concerning himself. Look at what he does in verse 44. Now he said to them, these are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. There's the language of necessity again for the third time in this chapter. Jesus here is pointing them to words. He's pointing them to his words and the words of scripture that predicted the suffering and death and resurrection of the Messiah as a part of God's necessary sovereign plan. But Jesus does more than that. He performs a miracle in their minds. Look what it says in verse 35. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. This is a miracle. And it's the miracle that they needed. All of a sudden, once he touches their minds, as it were, they get it. But guys, the fact that Jesus, after all of this evidence had to do a miracle of opening their minds shows us that evidence alone is good, but it's never enough. You can give overwhelming evidence to somebody about the truth of who Christ is, but the only way they will really believe is if God through Christ does a miracle of actually opening their minds to understand and believe. After opening their minds, Jesus speaks to them. And now that they have a mind to really comprehend what he's saying, look what he says in verse 46. It says, and he said to them, thus it is written, again, pointing them to the scriptures that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. And you are witnesses of these things, he says to his followers. What he's saying here is it was God's plan that I suffer and die and be raised. 
And it is God's plan that you be witnesses of these things and now proclaim the truth about me to all of the nations. And the message that can now be proclaimed, Jesus says, is repentance for the forgiveness of sins in his name. And that's why we're gathered here today, almost 2,000 years later. To make a long story short, we get some idea of the disciples' reaction at the end of this chapter where we learn that they experienced great joy and were continually praising God. So experiencing joy and the joy doesn't scare them anymore. They're letting themselves believe again and rejoice again, knowing our joy will never be taken away from us because Jesus is alive and he conquered death. And they were continually praising God. These shattered souls hours earlier are now continuously praising God. Through the loving and patient ministry of Christ to them, they had reached a place where they dared to believe and rejoice again, only now with a larger and a richer and a more informed faith than what they had before. It turns out that the worst thing that ever happened to them the most painful and disappointing experience of their lives somehow mysteriously was a part of God's grand plan to show the power of Christ to triumph over evil and bring salvation to the nations. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, his followers knew and all of us today can know that evil does not have to have the last word. The evils that I've done and the evils done against me never have to have the last word. Jesus has the last word. As we close this morning, I just want to ponder two quick thoughts uh, with you. First of all, if you have doubts, bring your doubts to Jesus. Luke 24 teaches us many things about Jesus, and it teaches us more than just Jesus was raised. Luke 24 teaches us that the resurrected Jesus is a master at lovingly ministering to people's doubts and graciously with sensitivity bringing them to a place of resurrected faith. If you're in a place this morning of disappointed Faith and hopelessness right now. Luke 24 teaches you that Jesus would actually like to walk with you wherever you're heading. And he'd love to listen to your story. Even if you're trying to walk away from him, he'll come to you and say, hey, can I walk with you while you're trying to walk away from me? He'd love to hear your story. So come to Jesus. Let him come to you. Tell him your story. He's a good listener. And he's also good at taking you to the scriptures and revealing himself to you and helping you to understand the bigger picture of what God is up to in the world. And he alone is able to perform the miracle of opening your mind to understand the things that you need to understand to have a fully informed faith. If nothing else, Luke 24 shows us that we can trust Jesus with our doubts I hope you see that true faith, guys, is not the absence of doubt. True faith is trusting Jesus with your doubts and letting him help you work through those doubts. Sometimes I hear people say things like, well, you know, I have doubts about Christ and the truth of Scripture. And when all of my doubts are resolved, then maybe I'll come to Jesus. On one level, that does not make any sense at all. Because Jesus is the most qualified person to help you with your doubts. And true faith entails bringing your doubts to Jesus and letting him be your friend and letting him minister to those doubts and deepen and broaden your faith beyond anything that you've ever had before. Let me say it this way. Salvation does not begin when your doubts are all gone. Salvation begins the moment 
you bring your doubting self to Jesus. Your doubts, your sadness, your fears, your wounds, and your troubled heart to him. And let him be your shepherd who shepherds you through that. If you're hurting this morning, I'm telling you, no one gets you like Jesus. Let him come to you. The final thing to ponder from this chapter, this is good news. In case you didn't already know this, we learn from Luke 24 that you can repent now because you have a savior if you want one. Jesus tells us in this chapter that it was necessary for him to die and it was necessary for him to be raised so that now repentance for the forgiveness of sins can be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. So if you're here today and you've never received the forgiveness of of your sins through Jesus Christ, the message of this chapter is that through Jesus, you now can repent of your sins and receive forgiveness in his name and through Jesus. You say, well, what does it mean to repent? It means to stop making excuses for your sin. It means to stop pointing the finger at other people and other things and blaming them for your sin. It means to view your sin as something that you need to be delivered from rather than as something you want to hold on to. Repentance means believing that you actually now have atonement for your sins through Christ. And that you can now lay claim to that atonement by coming to him and calling upon him and showing the humility and actually asking him for that forgiveness and receiving that from him. Repentance means that you're humble enough to recognize that your greatest problem is sin. And your greatest need right now is you need forgiveness of your sins from God. And it's that forgiveness that unlocks the door to all the other blessings of eternal life that God wants to give to you. And if God is opening your mind this morning to believe in Jesus Christ, I want you to know we've prayed for you. We're so glad that you're here today. We've been praying for you. And if God is opening your mind to believe in Jesus this morning, I plead with you to Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Receive the forgiveness of your sins through him. Let Jesus come to you today. Tell him your story of brokenness and sin and despair. And let him listen. And then let him finish your story. And that's the gospel right there. Christ died. He was buried. He was raised from the dead on the third day. And after he was raised, he comes to brokenhearted sinners, brokenhearted doubters whose faith has been shattered and wounded. And he seeks to cure their brokenness, cure their broken hearts and address their doubts with himself. And I plead with you to look to him today to realize that any moment you have lived apart from this one so wonderful as he is suffering. You were created for him and for relationship with him. And I pray that you would look to him and believe in him today. Let's bow our heads together. I plead with any who are here today that if you've never put your trust in Christ and called upon him for salvation, please do not leave this room without praying to him and humbly asking him to be your Lord and Savior, your shepherd and your friend from here to eternity. We have connection cards that are in your bulletin. If, if God's been touching your heart and speaking to you and 
Maybe you have questions. Uh, let us know that on the connection card and put that in the offering bag as it goes by so that we can reach out and talk to you. Please come talk to us afterwards. We would love to have the privilege of pointing you to Christ and showing you how you can have a relationship with him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we just thank you for the view of you that is presented in this chapter. What is not to love about a Savior like you? A Savior for wounded people. You didn't come for those who were healthy. You came for those who were sick. You came for the wounded. And we see your beauty in this chapter in the way that you just minister to the broken and shattered souls of those whose faith had been destroyed and you in, in the space of one day resurrect their faith and turn them into unstoppable champions for you with a faith richer and bigger than what they had ever had before. I pray that there would be an outpouring of that miracle upon our congregation and upon all who are gathered here today, Lord. Save us from our doubts and from our wounds and help us to trust you. We thank you for this opportunity to give of our offerings to you, Lord. Receive these funds do much with all that is given for the glory of Jesus in whose name we pray and all God's people said.